as we come before the very word of God and the preaching of it, would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We're nearing the end here of our stint in Exodus, at least. Exodus chapter 14. And before we read, would you please, please pray with me here. Uh, Lord, we know that wise teaching is a fountain of life. Would you be with us now and my words to be that wisdom. Help us to glean these things by your spirit so that we would live, so that we would see you and be comforted and drawn to worship you. Would you open our eyes to see and ears to hear now by your spirit. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is the book of Exodus in chapter 14. Uh, we have quite a number of verses here again. I mean, this is a, a narrative section. So we'll begin in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let's flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea the waters returned 
and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And of all the hosts of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. Now, in the world of mountain hiking, in mountain hiking, there's a phenomenon called the false peak. And for those who have experienced a false peak, you know that this can be very difficult to deal with. Uh, that in the experience of a, of a false peak, hiking mountains can sometimes be very long. Sometimes, depending on the size of the mountain, uh, takes several hours to hike through. And after a while in the hiking, the trees, at least if you're in the Colorado mountains, begin to thin the higher you get. And you can start to see the peak the goal that you've been, you've been looking for. And so even if you're tired, usually about this point, and you can see it ahead, you start to get this second wind, a little, a little burst of energy because the goal is now in front of you. And, 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 you uh, and, and, and as you reach the top of that peak, um, sometimes you realize that this is not the actual summit that that's not the peak you were looking for, that this, what you're at now, is actually just a false peak, which has been hiding the real summit, which is still quite a bit of climb away. Mm. Israel seems to experience that in these earlier chapters of Exodus. They had watched, in these previous sections we've been reading through over these past months, they had watched the Lord send plague after plague upon the Egyptians and judgment upon their gods. They watched as Pharaoh still said, no, no, I will not let you go. But then they started to see the peak through the trees that Pharaoh was starting to wear down. First he would say, you can go, but only the men, not the women, not the children, just the men. No, not yet. Then Pharaoh said, okay, now, now you can go, but only the people, not your flocks, not your herds, just you. And they said, no, no, not yet. But then in chapter 12, the 10th plague of judgment arrives in the death of all the firstborn in Egypt, and Pharaoh finally breaks. He says, get out. Get out of here. Take everything that you have with you. Just get out of my land. And I can only imagine what the people of Israel felt at the end of that night. This was a night of watching, it's described, as they left Egypt. And there was likely a lot of excitement, some sort of anticipation, maybe some sense of rejuvenation. Uh, Maybe there was even a smattering of fear and anxiety about what comes next for them because the summit is now just ahead. We can see it. My legs are tired, but it's there. I can get to it. I've got a second wind. And then they get to the top of this and they face the dreaded realization that this is just a false peak because the battle isn't over yet. 
The Lord had brought them out of Egypt by this point, but he had not yet saved them from Egypt. They're camped here at this point on the edge of the Red Sea. And with the sea out in front of them, they turn around and see Pharaoh with 600 of his best chariots, along with hordes of other, you know, regular chariots, all ridden by horses, uh, horsemen and officers, all these people charging now after them to take them back to Egypt into slavery. And if you've ever experienced a false peak, either in the mountains or just in other places. The real challenge of a false peak is not the physical strain of it, although it also physically feels hard. It's the emotional toll that this takes, that there's a sense of of setback, of discouragement, loss, that hope is just drained out for a, for a time. And like we hear in the scriptures and Proverbs, hope deferred makes a heart sick. And so we can understand from the people their sort of sick response, what we looked at last week, that now in this position they become fearful and resentful and even spiteful. They begin to snap at Moses and at the Lord. They say, you know, it would have been better if you would have just left us alone And even if we recognize that their response is sinful, we can probably empathize with it. We probably understand what it's like to be there. The reality is that the Lord had brought them here. And the Lord is prolonging their time here now at the front of the Red Sea by sending them up this false peak. And the Lord does this not just to toy with the people. Dance, puppets, dance. It's not just because the Lord is mean or sadistic. It's because this path, which will lead them up and even over this false peak, this path is the way by which he will glorify himself as the true God over all. This is the way in which he will show the world, really, his unmatched power. And what is good for the Lord is also good for his people. This whole event, even the experience of the false peak, will have a good effect on them. Because the people here will step into the Red Sea one way, and they will step out of the Red Sea another way. They are going to be different people, really, on opposite sides of the the banks. So the sea for them is even a sort of baptism in that sense, if we can call it that. You can see what has changed in the people when you look at the end of the whole narrative in verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so here's how they're different. The people feared the Lord, and they believed. This experience caused them to fear the Lord and to believe. Of 
all of the massive events in the book of Exodus that we've looked at over this past months, almost a year, the author of Hebrews, when looking back upon this, lists only this one particular moment. This moment here at the, at the edge of the Red Sea is the point of faith for the people. The words are, by faith the people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. There is faith in them here. Now, their faith is still pretty shallow. We see in them a pretty undeveloped, even immature faith at times. Their faith will need to grow and be shaped by the Lord. We're going to see their faith kind of ebb and flow, rise and fall. Even if we had continued to read through the book of Exodus, we would clearly see that play out over those times. But, but at least there is a true faith in the Lord here. Big or small, it is still faith. And this is the real summit that the Lord is after. This is the summit of the mountain that's behind the false peak. Not just that the Egyptians would be gone, but that the people of Israel would put faith in the Lord. We see that here now. Now, having said that, that that's the goal in all of this, that they would put faith in God, I want to clarify a little bit. I don't mean to give the impression here by talking about this mountain of faith that this is something that the people had to claw their way up. You know, tooth and nail, got pickaxes and ropes and, you know, trying to get our way up the mountain. This is not something that is uncertain Faith is not something that is just left to us, that, you know, only the strong survive, while a few just kind of die off along the way. Scripture speaks about faith as a work of God in us. We have faith, but he is the the giver of faith, the author and sustainer of faith. Peter, in the intro to his uh, first letter, speaks about faith in this way to kind of encourage the people that he's speaking to. And some of his very first words after the introduction to the letter are that God has caused us. God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. That God has kept us an inheritance in heaven, secured for us. That God has guarded these things through faith by his power. That even our faith is in God's hands. That's the reason, by the way, that Christians have no right to boast. Christians have good reason to put aside our doubts because everything that we have, even our faith, is given to us by God. And it is kept by him. That's a comfort to a believer. But then Peter, and having given all these things to the people in the intro of 1 Peter, then follows up these comforting words uh, with just a very honest reminder. And this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, picking up in verse 6. He says this, In this you rejoice, in other words, in all of what I've just said about faith, in this you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, if I can summarize what he's just said here, your faith in Jesus is secure. It belongs to Jesus, not, for, not to you. So don't worry. Instead, just rejoice in that. And at the same time, you need to know that trials will come and they will cause you grief. And these trials will be part of a testing to prove or to show, to uncover the genuineness of your faith. That testing, he even says, is a good thing. It's greater than all the gold that's tested by fire and falls away because the testing of faith produces for Jesus praise and glory and honor. So every mountain that I personally have ever climbed, literal mountains, not just metaphorical ones, even the ones with the false peaks, even the ones where you get there and it's just crushing to have your hopes dash and think you're done but you're not yet, even with the ones that I wondered if I would even be strong enough to get to the top or just have to give up and turn around and go down, in all of them, never once have I regretted it by the time I got to the summit. Never once. It's like sitting there at the top, all the muscle aches just kind of melt off for a moment. And all the sweat and the blood and the tears, even if it was a really rough one, seem almost like a distant memory. The mountain of faith, then, when we sit on it, is that way. Because we can see that the, the God has done a great work by bringing us there. It is breathtaking because there, by faith, we're able to see, ah, oh, yes, I forgot. This is my God. You can see him there. So on one hand, we don't want to make too much of faith in the sense of, you know, work real hard, you got to get to it. It's a gift of God. On the other hand, we know that this journey is not all cake, cake and ice cream either. There are trials here in faith, but they are worth the, tr the trouble. They are worth the challenges. They are, you know, these are trials after all. Of course, they're challenging. So when we look here at this scene in Exodus with the people crossing the Red Sea in Exodus, you know, many of us know this scene well, well enough. Maybe we've seen the movies or the made-for-TV kind of experience of this. And if you're anything like me, you, it, it's, it's fun kind of to imagine what this might have been like. You know, it's very dramatic. Moses you know, raises up his staff and very, very powerful. You can see the sea sort of split open and there's the dry path that the people can walk through. It's really amazing. It's kind of cool to watch. They're, they're, the people are just told, the Lord will fight for you. So just hush and go forward. You know, that sounds simple enough. And so... Uh, uh, yeah, why they should just do it. And maybe there's a little bit of challenge in that. Maybe there's a little bit of trial in that, but not much, at least in my head. There is more trial in this than we might imagine if we actually look at what's happening here. Let me unpack what the people experienced as they crossed through the Red Sea in Egypt. So first, let's talk about what's out in front of them as they go through. 
So map, if you can imagine a map with me, if you're listening through your radio, car radio, well, this is not that complex of a map. So here's, here's Egypt. Here's the promised land where Israel is headed. Here's kind of the wilderness that they'll have to go through. And along here is the, the Red Sea. Some, we don't know exactly what part of this that people went through. Some call it the, the Sea of Reeds. We're not sure what area, what part along. But we know at least this. To get from Egypt over to the Promised Land, they at least have to go this way. Might be some angle of it. But at least this way. They have to go east. Which means then that verse 21 takes on an interesting note. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. An east wind is a wind that comes from the east. And the people have to walk into it. This is not just a cool breeze, this east wind. Not something you like to enjoy while you sit on your porch. This is closer to, you know, gale force winds. The Lord could have parted uh, this sea here by just a word of his power. He's done that many times. Miraculous, supernatural things with just a word. But here he's chosen to use the wind, at least part of the, of the wind, as his means to do this supernatural work of parting the sea. So uh, this is not just a gust of wind, although it is that. It's a gust of wind that continues because this drove the sea back all night, it says. And this strong east wind that's holding back the sea all night, these people of Israel have to walk into the wind. They could feel, I'm sure, the strain in their legs as they climbed this mountain. They might have even needed to help others around them who were older or needed more help as they went through. This is what's out in front of them. Now, what's on the side of them? We're told twice in this text, in verse 22 and verse uh, 29, that on either side there was a wall of water on the right and the left. And part of the particular purpose of this is that the Egyptians wouldn't be able to come in and flank them from the sides. There's just this narrow pathway. But this wall was not just a wall like you see in an animal pen, you know, big enough for the bull not to be able to jump over. It's not even just a wall like you would see in a house. Uh, one scholar, several scholars have said, have noted this, that the Hebrew word here for wall is the wall around a city, like fortress-style walls. These walls would have been likely 20 feet high or far more. These are massive walls of water. However high they were, we're not told exactly. It's not like Moses was getting out his, you know, little ruler and measuring. They had to at least be enough walls of water for the whole army of Pharaoh later to be able to drown in. So this is not just ankle deep kind of thing. This massive wall of water also is not just like, you know, if you go to... Sea World, I've never been, but I think it's like this. You go to Sea World and you can go up and there's places where there's a big wall, but there's glass in between you. 
You know, there's water on one side and me on the other, but there's something kind of in between that's nice and clean. These walls of water are held in place by the hand of God, by the wind. What's holding the wall of water up is wind. And so in theory, at least, the people, if they were close enough, could reach out and put their hand in it. Touch it. It's likely even that this wall of water on the right side and the left was, was giving off a spray as they cross through on the dry land. And it's interesting for me to kind of imagine this just as a story sake, you know, and wonder, like, could they see fish in it? You know, reach in, grab a little dinner for later, I don't know. But in reality, this was probably less of a cool experience than it was just a scary one. So that's what's ahead and, and on the sides of them. Now, what's behind them? Well, of course, it's the, the big armies of Pharaoh and all of his chariots. And, and some might say, well, at least they didn't have to worry about the army as they crossed. And there's some truth to that because we're told here that the Lord stood between Israel and the armies of Pharaoh, that he's there in a pillar of cloud and fire to prevent access between the two. But this wasn't just a column of smoke where the Lord is. The Psalms suggest that this pillar uh, was something closer to a storm. We hear it at the end of Psalm 77. It may have even looked much more like a tornado. Listen to the way this is worded. Psalm 77, verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled and the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, and the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron." The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. So just to summarize all of this, as the people of Israel are crossing this dry land of the Red Sea, ahead of them are gale force winds. On the sides of them are great walls of water, and behind them are flashing, is a flashing whirlwind that seems to be spraying water and cloud and all of this onto the army of Pharaoh. And to top it all off, it's nighttime. There's some indication that there was some measure of light that was coming from the Lord. We don't know exactly how, but this was dark. As they traveled through the parted Red Sea all night, surely they were tired and just wanted to be able to lay down and get some sleep. Now, it's in the middle of this whole situation that the Lord's command to them has just been, tell the people to go forward. I want you to go through the sea on the dry ground that I've provided. And they did. It's not like they had a whole lot of other better options, but 
They did. They did what the Lord had asked, and they were changed, shaped by this Exodus experience. Things look different for them on the opposite bank that we're told that in the early morning hours they could see how it all played out. That after the Lord had finally allowed all the Israelites to pass through, he tells uh, Moses to, clo- to hold out his staff to close the waters in upon Pharaoh and his armies. We're told that the Lord sent the armies into a panic, that he clogged up their chariot wheels. And so Moses does this. It all kind of collapse in upon them. And in the dawn of the morning light, the people can see what the Lord has done now. It's a very graphic image at the end. We're told that the, the whole army is just washing up dead on the shore. And it's more than just that their external circumstances had changed, although, of course, that's the case. There is no, no more army now to follow them. It's also that their internal circumstances had changed. Israel saw, and they feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord. They had endured this testing of their faith, and it would produce praise and glory and honor to God. Again and again, the scriptures will return to these events at the Red Sea, reminding the people of what had happened. And the reason for that is to encourage faith in us as we look back upon it. The Red Sea is reported to encourage our faith, not because there's a promise for us that everything's going to be okay in the morning. That's not the intent here. You know, somehow if I just duck my head down and if I press into the wind in just a few hours when I wake up, it will be fine. We know that the Lord will win every battle. He will, that is absolutely sure. But there are some battles that he just finishes with a tip of his staff and a collapse of the sea and it's done. There are others that according to his wisdom, he does not resolve for generations. Some trials will be long. So this is not promising us that it will all be okay just tomorrow. Nor is this passage encouraging us to reflect upon our own faith or lack of it. The point of this is not to make us wonder if we have enough faith to do this. Would I do like Israel did, or would I collapse under the weight of this? I mean, have you often wondered, as I have, you know, I feel like I can barely muster up enough faith to get through today, and I haven't walked through any seas lately. The point of, us is not to tur- the point of this is not to turn our eyes inward. No one has ever increased their own faith by pondering their own faith. If you look inward, it will only cause you to drain any water out of the tub that was there to begin with. The goal here is not to look at faith, but to look at God. To see the one who's the creator and sustainer of faith. To see how God protected and saved his people through all the winds, through the water, through the whirlwinds, even in the dark of night that he walked with them. Now, things are still hard. 
It's a challenge even to look to God. It's my tendency naturally to look at my circumstances or to look inward. It's a challenge to turn my heart and mind toward God. I need help with that. I often need help with that because I forget. And if you're like me, uh, the scripture helps us in this way too. We're reminded of how the people turn their hearts to God. Psalm 77, where we read before about uh, the ending, how the Red Seas were opened, the flashing of whirlwind and such, that's how the writer ends. But the author here, Asaph of Psalm 77, is reminding us not only of the Red Sea, but of his own circumstances and how challenging it is and what he does. And so we'll end here just by reading the earlier verses in Psalm 77. Let's close with this. Listen here carefully and let this stir your faith in God. This is Psalm 77, verse 1. The writer says this. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I can't speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. This is our God. Let's pray. Lord, would you do now in us what you have done in generations past to produce a faith in us that looks to you. Cause us to remember, even to ponder all of your mighty works throughout the ages, especially here at the Red Sea. And as we look here upon your works, would you comfort us, strengthen us, and bring us to praise your great name. And we give you all thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.